you have a Bible, turn open to the book of Ephesians. Lori and I are cord cutters, been so since 2008 when we moved back to California. Uh, we were thinking about the cost of cable and television. We thought, man, what, $50, we're not, we're not interested in spending that. So we became what's called the cord cutter. You might be hearing that phrase. We were on the front end of that trend. But fortunately, because we have Netflix and Apple TV, we don't feel like we've missed any of the shows that we really want to watch. However, there is an experience that doesn't take place in the Roadiever household. I think in a lot of growing number of households, this experience is disappearing. Um, and, and that's the experience of channel surfing when you were at home sick or something and you're bored, just looking desperately for something to watch. And finally, because there was nothing you wanted to watch, you ended up watching just what was on TV. Now, for you people probably 30 and under, there was a time where you just had to watch what was broadcasted. You didn't get to pick and choose and binge watch. You just had a signal coming through and you had to watch that. So as a result, we watched a lot of things that we wouldn't normally have watched. As a kid, that means I watched a lot of game shows. Some of my favorites were The Price is Right, um, Wheel of Fortune, and then a little bit later, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? But that was during the evening. But during the mornings, they had all these syndicated shows. You guys remember those, right? Price is White. One of the things I loved about game shows was watching the response of people who hit the jackpot. They would get all excited, and they would cry. They would jump up and down. They'd run around the studio, and they'd, they'd hug the cameraman. They'd kiss the host. They'd fall on the ground and spin in circles. They'd do all kinds of mayhem. I always loved watching that. Well, years later, Oprah Winfrey kind of died. I didn't watch her show, but apparently she caught wind of that and thought once a year, she's not going to do that with a select few. She's going to do this with the entire studio audience. She would just blow them away with these gifts. And I got a real clip up here. I just want you to see the mayhem and, and joyful chaos that takes place on one of her shows. Here it is. Okay, you keep it there. Now, this is going to sound strange, but there's something absolutely right about what we just saw. Now, you're going, now some of you are probably laughing because you're laughing, going, I'd never respond that way. Like that one guy was kind of prostrate on that, just going crazy. But there's something absolutely appropriate of what we just saw. You ever watch Extreme Makeover? Remember that TV show? Was it Ty Peddington? Was that his name? What was his name? Ty Pennington, right. Extreme makeover where they would completely make someone's house 100% over in, in was it a one, one night or a weekend? And always the reveal was the climax of the show, and they would go to commercial break right before the reveal because they knew people were waiting with bated breath to see the response, and then you would have it. And what always took place was just absolute tears and crying and hysteria and just falling apart joy. 
Why do we love watching that? Why do we enjoy, as, as funny as that was, as none of you here obviously would ever act that way, why do we love watching that? I'll give you a little bit of a hint. It's the same reason we love watching children on Christmas morning. What is it? The surprise. Anyone else? Thank you, Ralph. Anyone else? What's that? What's that back there? Brings us joy. I heard another one. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. There is something so right when there is just this abundant, over-the-top, lavish gift-giving that results. There is something so right when a family stands and accepts total, unmerited, amazing grace that they did not deserve and gets something that makes them go crazy and fall apart. There's something right about responding to lavish grace that's just thrown on upon us. That's the right response. So often when we get gifts like that, what do we do? Oh no, you shouldn't have. We do everything to fight the gift. Wrong response. The right response to lavish generosity is not to pull out your wall and see how much you can pay back. It's to just be overwhelmed with the graciousness of the gift giver. They've got it right. And this morning as we start our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians, Paul begins the first chapter with this kind of over-the-top, abundant giving so much that Paul cannot stop writing as he just is blown away at God's goodness to humanity. Do you realize that this entire first chapter of Ephesians, with the exception of verses 1 and 2, which is Paul's kind of introduction and hello, the rest of the 23 verses in the original language is just one, excuse me, two sentences. Any teacher in here is about to have a heart attack. From verses 3 to 14, it's just one sentence of continuous praise to God. And then from verses 15 to 23, it's a second sentence of a continuous prayer of thanksgiving to God's goodness. Paul is the master of the run-on sentence here. He's got no time for a period. He throws in a comma here and there, a dash, a semicolon, but he cannot stop because God is so good to the human race. He is reflecting on God's grace lavishly poured out to humanity. And the words just come, or the words just come tumbling out like a cascade as he pens them, and he can barely stop himself. One commentator said this, that that this is like a verbal snowball rolling down the mountainside that picks up volume and speed as it rolls down. Another commentator said that Paul is like a long-winded racehorse galloping at full speed. It's been no wonder that church history has called Ephesians chapter 1 the hymn of grace comparable to 1 Corinthians 13 that's been called the hymn of love. Now, whatever you want to call it, if this was the only text of Scripture that you ever had, that, that these 23 verses were all you ever got in your Christian experience, if they got into the core of your soul, if they marinated throughout you, it would be enough to change your life. Now, while I don't expect any of you to hyperventilate or cry or certainly don't come up, run up here and kiss me, unless you're my wife, I do want to ask that this morning, 
let's not look at this text kind of as business as usual. That, that we're just going to intellectually analyze this text. That we're so familiar with it that the amazing truth behind it no longer fuels us anymore. Let's go to it as it was intended to be. Fresh, clean, pure water for parched and thirsty souls. And let's drink it accordingly. See, as Paul begins this amazing letter, he wants to start by putting all of life for the Christian, for those who have placed their faith in Christ into its proper context. And that is that we have been blessed beyond all imaginable comprehension. And he wants to show that that is the entire Godhead involved in this blessing. He wants to show how our salvation, our blessing is a work of God the Father in verses 4 through 6. It is a work of God the Son in verses 7 through 12, and a work of God the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. We'll look at them one at a time. Before we do, let's just ask God to bless His Word as we dive into this amazing passage. Lord, forgive us, God, that when we read Your Word and we think about what You've done for us, we don't explode into that kind of hilarious rejoicing that we see. Somehow we've tamed the gospel in our lives, and we need to repent of that, God. Thank you in your mercy. You have had Paul the Apostle write down for our benefit these amazing truths. And Spirit, would you give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see how really blessed we are. It is so easy to focus on the difficulties and trials, and they are real. But Father, we have something that beyond the difficulty and trials, can fill our sails to full with gratitude. And we ask that you'd help us to see that now. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. It's page 976, I believe, in your pew Bible, if you're looking at one of those. The work of God the Father in blessing us, verses 4 through 6. Let me just take it from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Two things I want to bring out here is as we see this very first part of God, the Father, uh, working to bless us, he does two things. Number one, he elects us. And we see that in that God chooses his people and God adopts his people. We touched on this briefly last week. I just want to unpack that a little bit now this morning. Election is something that the Bible teaches. We, we can't get away from it. It's right there in black and white. But it's not just in the New Testament or in the book of Ephesians that we see that. This concept that God chooses people is all throughout the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament. If you are a note taker, and I apologize, I don't give you much room to take notes in your outlines there. I'll cut back on that. But if you're a note taker, write down Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 6, and kind of thereabouts that area. And Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. But I want you to do is hold your finger in Ephesians. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, if you're new to reading your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We see this at verse 6. 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So we see here that God has chosen the nation of Israel. But it's not just on a national level. God has chosen individuals. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses. He chose King David. God's choosing of his people is something we see all throughout Scripture. We see it as well in the New Testament. Here in Ephesians 1, but as I taught a couple of weeks ago, we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, all of those ideas and concepts of the Old Testament, God puts on his people in the New Testament, that he has chosen his people. Now, this choice is not a sign of God dismissing our desire. Rather, it's a sign of his great love. Often when we think about this doctrine of election, we, we kind of think of it, well, what about my choice? God's overriding my choice. That's not love. That God's choosing of us is not to override my desire. It's actually a sign of his love. I personally would have never chosen him. And if we're be honest, many of us in this room would not have chosen him unless he chose us. My mom and dad, my friends, my family, my teachers, some police officers would certainly attest Rick Rodever would never choose righteousness over unrighteousness. I would not have chosen the right. When it comes to what I desired, I always chose according to my selfish desires. And I think if we're honest, that's true of us as well. Now, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, um, or actually my family and I, watched the, the film adaptation of the book called The Giver. It's a, a dystopian novel. I think it's kind of written to an adolescent age group about a perfect future. But it's a perfect future simply because desires and emotions had been medicated away. There is a pivotal scene in the film where Meryl Streep, who's the kind of the leader of the society, is making the case that when humanity gets to choose, humanity always chose wrongly. And because of that, there was suffering and war and famine and poverty and all the ills of humanity. The giver, played by Jeff Bridges, was making the counter-argument saying that, that humanity needs to choose. We can't take that choice away from them. That even if humanity chooses wrongly, they must have the ability to make the choice. See, they've solved the problem by taking away all desires and passions. And so they could not even choose. The giver says people need to have a choice even if they choose wrongly. And you see there, as I talk with my kids, what's the message coming out there? So kids, I want you to be aware that one of the messages coming out to this otherwise really great film is that idea of postmodernism that the autonomy of the self trumps all other things. That the ability to make a choice is the predominant virtue. As long as people can choose, the message goes, it doesn't really matter what they choose, they just need to have the right to choose. Now, in a similar way, Buddhism espouses the same kind of view. The reason there is suffering and lack in the world is because people have desires and passions, and one of two things will either happen. Either they, go, they choose wrongly, or those passions never are fulfilled. And so the reason there's suffering is because there's want and desire. To get rid of suffering, get rid of all desires. Same kind of thing. So from a secular postmodern view, you either have autonomous anarchy or medicate our desires away, or you have the religious view, which is either experience want or suffering, or eliminate desires entirely. Neither of those options are very satisfying, are they? See, Christianity teaches something completely different. 
Christianity teaches that our desires are good and they are a gift from God. Our passions, our emotions, our desires, they're all a good gift from God. But because of sin, man has a predisposition to choose selfishly without regard to God or others. You see, gifts, desires, passions, those are great, but sin has disordered them. They're out of order. They're disjointed. They don't work the way they should. So God's election is not a sign of tyranny. It's actually a sign of mercy. We would never choose what God would want us to choose. So God reshapes our desires and nature by choosing us first so that we might choose him. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this than I normally would otherwise because it's one of those key things that we have to understand. Parents understand this concept perfectly. Maybe you had a conversation like this around the breakfast table. Son, sweetie, or daughter, I know you want Count Chocula for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but you're going to get broccoli slaw. You're going to get some veggies there too, right? It's the, it's, the, it's the responsibility of someone who knows better to exercise such authority for the benefit of those under their care. You get that? Parents get that all the time. It's the parent's responsibility in some sense to violate the free will choice of their child for the benefit of the child. We actually even do this at a societal level, don't we? Anyone ever got a, a fix-it or, or a click-it or fix-it ticket? Right? As a society, we recognize that sometimes overriding the will of somebody who wants to sit in the car without a seatbelt is not a good idea, so we actually impose laws to violate someone's free choice to not have a seatbelt on. Now, mind you, they can still choose not to have a seatbelt, but there's a consequence that follows. The point is, is that sometimes we understand that it's the pejorative and res- or prerogative and responsibility of those in authority to exercise that authority even against someone's free choice for their benefits. So what seems like an offensive doctrine on the front end, this doctrine of election, is only so because we have an overinflated view of autonomy. And what seems offensive actually is not much different than a parent's care for a son or daughter that they love. So God chooses his people. We see that in verse 4. But his choice of his people is for a purpose. We see that in verse 5. The purpose of our choosing, the purpose of our election, is for our adoption. He predestined us. Why? He chose us. Why? For adoption. With all the corresponding privileges and blessings and responsibilities that comes with that. So in verse 3, when Paul is saying that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, this is one of them. Our adoption in Christ. And there are so many other benefits and blessings, but I just want to talk about just a couple bit on this idea of adoption. What do we get when we are adopted by Christ? When we are adopted by God in Christ? One of the things that we get that we didn't have before was access. Access to Him. There are times that I'm very busy in my life. Uh, right now, I'm finishing up my, my doctoral work. And so, when I have time to study, it's just study time. But you know, that doesn't apply. I mean, no one can visit me, basically, at that point. I, very, I don't answer calls. I don't do text messages. I need to study. With three exceptions, four exceptions. 
Three, though, is when one of my children opens my garage door and walks in, I stop everything. I might be studying postmodern literary criticism and my head's about to explode, but when my daughter wants to come in and shows me what she made, everything stops and I focus on that. When we are, children, when we are family, access is one of those things you have. There's no barriers, there's no locked door. They can come in whenever they want. When we are adopted into God's family, we have complete access. There are no signs, there are no locked doors that say, do not disturb, it's come on in. Another is security. When we're adopted, when we become family, no matter how my kids may behave, they are always going to be what? My kids, right? Now, I may talk like I want to disown them. I may sometimes act like I want to disown them. But they are never disowned because they're family. No matter what they do, no matter what they do, they will always be my sons and daughter. That is very true of our adoption. That is just the same as adoption. There is a security there knowing that no matter what I do, I will never be forsaken. I am family now. I have access to my father and I'm family and I'll never be put aside because I'm adopted. I'm one of his. There's a final thing here and there's more, but just for the point of moving on, affection. Did you know that God loves you? Yeah, you know that. If you've been in a church long enough, you've heard that. Let me answer this question. Do you know that God likes you? Right? We all understand God loves us, but is it in your bones that God likes you? That he takes joy over you? That he not only wants you in his presence, he desires it, and it brings him pleasure and delight and joy that you're one of his. Those are just, I mean, we're just talking the tip of the iceberg of what it means to be adopted by God that I have access, that I will never be cast out, that he actually has affection towards me. And get this, why does he do all that? Is it because I was great or somebody he wanted in his family that he just had to have, the stellar child? No, it's very humbling. Look at verse 6. He does all this to the praise of his glorious grace. So the God the Father elects his people to the praise of his glorious grace. So if that's God the Father electing us, we see now God the Son redeeming us in verses 7 through 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Wow, there's a lot here. So we're looking at here, uh, this word that's really rich in significance, the word redemption. It's a rich term, and it means purchasing back. And the word picture that's being brought about in the New Testament is the freeing of slaves from a slave market. For Paul, and actually, if you have any Jewish friends, the idea of redemption doesn't start in the New Testament at all, particularly if they're Jewish. It actually goes back to the book of Exodus. The great Exodus out of Egypt was the prototype of all deliverance, so much so that the Jewish culture still celebrates that deliverance today. They still celebrate that redemption today. It's called the Passover. But we know that that Passover, that deliverance, was a foreshadowing of the deliverance that Christ would bring. Let me just read briefly to you First uh, Chronicles 17.21. If you're a note taker, write down Deuteronomy 7.8 as well. 
Deuteronomy 7, 8. Oh, you know, that's a good one. Let me just read that to you as well. Deuteronomy 7, 8. This answers the question as well. The Lord says, why did you choose Israel? Verse 8 of chapter 7. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then 1 Chronicles 17, 21 says roughly the same kind of thing. 1 Chronicles 17, 21. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things and driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. So this idea of redemption that we're just touching on in Ephesians 1, 7 here goes back to the Old Testament is that God is delivering. He's buying back his people from bondage and slavery. So if there's a buyback here, what is the cost of that redemption? It's there in Ephesians 1. The cost through his blood is a figure of speech for the the death of Christ. It's a figure of speech. So when you see through his blood, he's saying the death of Christ. In the same way we might say Wall Street to refer to the financial district, Or we might say the beltway to refer to the political district of D.C. When he says, through the blood, he's talking about the death of Jesus Christ. But get this, what does this redemption get us? What does this redemption get us? The forgiveness of sins and God's rich grace. Right there in verse 7. According to the riches of his grace, the trespass forgiveness of our sins, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and in insight. We get God's grace, which is lavished upon us. So I want you to think for a second here. What is your go-to sin as a Christian? What is that sin that you're struggling with, that you have struggled with for years? Is it lust? Is it anger? Is it pornography? Maybe something more subtle. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe laziness. Self-indulgence. Those are a little bit more under the radar, but they're just as destructive, aren't they? What are those things that you go to and time and time again you feel like, man, I failed. I blew it. Okay? Get that in your mind. You don't have to say what it is. We've all got them. Here's another question. How many times can you go to God's throne and get forgiveness for that? Every time? Yeah, we all know that very well. That's exact. Who said that? Was that you? Is that you? Back there. Gary. Good. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't put you on the spot. Every time. What's that look like? Is that, is that a thousand times? How about 5,000 times? When, and I know we know, the Bible teaches every time, but wow, do you feel that you, God says, oh, I'm tired already of forgiving you for the same thing? You feel that way? I do. It, 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 it gets to the point you go, man, I just give up. I, I can't go back to the throne. He says, no, lavish grace is given to you. Now, I want to try and make that more concrete here in whatever way I can. To do that, I need a coffee lover. Who's a coffee lover? We have no, wait, wait, I saw a hand. All right, come on up here. Come on up here. A coffee lover, yes. Come on up here. She's not going to raise her hand ever again. Okay. Debbie. All right, I'm getting the names. Debbie, what kind of coffee do you love? Any. Any kind of coffee? The kind we have at work. 
Well, we have Maxwell House here, I think, right? So, I mean, Maxwell House? No. No? No. What is it? I forget. It's something my great boss is. Mocha Java. Okay. There's a Starbucks right down the street, right? So, here's $5. After service, just go down and grab yourself a Mocha Java. Yeah. Just there you go. What? Yeah. I mean, it's not that thing to do. I gave you $5. Don't do that. No, no, no. Okay, wait, wait, wait. What do you like with your coffee, Debbie? Light cream, I guess. I don't know. Just cream? You don't like muffins? They have muffins, croissants, scones? Oh, you're on a diet. Well, get one of those uh, lightweight scones. Here's another five. Somebody else. Somebody else. Okay, who wants to get coffee with Debbie? Anybody? Who's here? Who you want to get? You want to get coffee with Debbie? Michelle's going to get coffee. So, Michelle, let's give Michelle five bucks. You can have coffee with Debbie. No, 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 no. There you go. Why? What the, the, the deal here? So you can have coffee. Well, all right, you got Tim. Tim gets five bucks too. Now, Debbie, can, is there somebody here you'd like to take for coffee other than Michelle and Tim? Mary. Mary needs, there you go, $5. Okay, there you go. Thank you very much. Now, at some point, this, do you have to come back for a second service to give it back? I love it. Did you hear that? She asked, does she have to give this back for second service? But that's my point from my first opening illustration, isn't it? That was just, that was unexpected, that was kind, but that's nothing. At some point, that ends, because the road evers don't have that kind of flow going on, so that ends, right? But, but imagine if I was uh, Bill Gates, or Warren Buffett, or Mark Zuckerberg. I could be doling out, all of us would be going out to coffee. But it ends at some point for them too, doesn't it? Bill Gates just wrote a check. I think it was for $28 billion to start their, their, the Bill and Melinda Foundation to fight poverty. I love it. $28 billion. You know how much money that is? If you don't know, I'll tell you. You could spend a million dollars a year, and it would take you 28,000 years. But at some point, they were going to end giving out $5 bills for coffee. God doesn't. God says, that ain't nothing compared to what I have. Do you know how we know that? Look in the text. It says, God's lavish grace and forgiveness and blessing according to his riches. This is why we have to study the Bible carefully. Paul didn't write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit out of his riches. He said according to. Because if Bill Gates gave whatever amount of money right now, he just gave out of his riches. That was $25 out of his riches. $28 billion is according to his riches. Do you see the difference? He could give $25 and that would be out of his riches. But when he gave $28 billion, that was according to his riches. And the passage says God lavishes mercy and grace and forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. But it's the human instinct to say, no, I gotta give it back. You're actually gonna give me, I only gave you like 25 bucks. And we go, no, I gotta give that back. God says, no. If that's how you relate to one another, you cannot have that category when it comes to me. You won't understand me if that's how you function. I give and I give and I give because that's who I am. And we see the death of Christ as the ultimate expression of that giving. If I could almost say, counter what I said, there's no more giving he could do than to give God the Son. And that's what we get, redemption in Christ. 
So whatever that sin is, that you go, I can't go back. I, I've gone back a thousand times. I've gone back 5,000 times. He says, you just don't get this, do you? I can bankroll this for eternity because I'm giving you my riches. I'm lavishing them on you out of the riches, according to the riches of my grace, and they don't end. That's what we have in Christ. That's what we have. That kind of blessing. We've been redeemed that way. And God does it. Again, look at verse 12. Notice this phrase is nicely breaking up our our, our text this morning. Verse 12, he does that to the praise of his glory. Oh, it glorifies God when he says, I'll forgive you. I will forgive you. It glorifies him. Lastly, so we see the work of God the Father in blessing us, that he elects us, work of God the Son, he redeemed us. Now we see the work of God the Spirit in sealing us, verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I haven't addressed... Um, If you are not a Christian and you're visiting with us today, we haven't really said much to you. I just want to recognize, I want you to recognize that when I read the Bible, I'm at least recognizing that how narrow-minded and arrogant sometimes the Bible can sound to our culture. And and as Christians, I want you to think about how counterculture the the Scripture is. Because so often if you're in a Christian community, we forget. And you you might be thinking, "What, what, what are you talking about? There's a phrase in here that says in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. Folks, we live in a culture where truth is, truth is up for grabs. We cannot assume that. And, and when, when I say truth, when we as Christians say truth, we don't, nearly mean, we don't necessarily mean our truth, um, our take on things, our preferences, And that's often what you hear in the cultural conversation. That's not what we mean. If you're not a Christian, when we say we believe in truth, we actually mean that there is a truth out there. That truth actually exists. And I know how odd that might sound. It really does. You see, we live in a postmodern world, right? In in pre-modern times, truth was a given. You just believed it. It was what it was. No one questioned it. In modern times, truth became limited to those things that the hard sciences could prove to us, things we could verify, the empirical things we could feel and touch and grab. In postmodern times, the whole concept of truth is up for grabs. It's all perspective and, and, and preference and cultural issues. So I recognize, we recognize how counter the Bible's claims can sound on your ears if you're not used to this. What's even more shocking is Christians believe that truth is embodied in a person. Not only does truth actually exist, but it's embodied in a person named Jesus Christ. That's why all through this text, did you notice these phrases, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, always keeps coming up because our truth has to be anchored. Our truth is not decided even by our church, by our denomination. Our truth is not decided by scholars and theologians. Our truth is anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is always making a huge deal of who Jesus is. 
Now, although this text is, is given to Christians to really ground our gratitude to God, and rightly so, did you notice looming in the background these real somber overtones in Ephesians 1? There's got to be this huge rupture or disturbance. Something tragic has happened in this world, one that requires redemption. Something must have gone seriously wrong that required a deity, if you're a non-Christian thinking about Christianity, to die for people to be bought back from slavery. When, when Paul delivers us the good news that forgiveness that we just talked about is readily and abundantly available, doesn't that imply that there is something to be forgiven? It's there, folks. All through this text, you see, the reason there is good news The reason as Christians that we are celebrating and saying why we should be excited because we're blessed is because the bad news has actually been resolved. Truth prevails. Deception and lies have been exposed. In Christianity, the truth has been made known, and his name is Jesus. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and life. In John 18, when Pilate confronts Jesus and Jesus talks about truth, Pilate says to him, what is truth? You see, this whole concept of truth has always been on the enemy's agenda. If we can make you think truth doesn't matter and it's relative and it's up to your personal preference, then the gospel means nothing because it's all about our perspective and preference. But as Christians, we actually believe in rightness and wrongness. We may not always do the right thing, and we're sorry for that. But we know that there's a standard that we all have to fall in line with, and we all know we don't. And that's why we just celebrated this lavish forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Truth exists. It's something that can be known. It's a person. It's not abstract principles and propositions and a system and a, and a cold, detached institution. It's a person named Jesus. And Paul is saying here, because this reality has taken place, that truth actually has prevailed, that the lie and falseness and sin has been exposed, those who believe in this person have a seal upon them. Remember those cool uh, wax signet rings that we see where the, the impression of the owner is indelibly impressed on the object that is owned. That's what Paul is talking about here, and that's the Holy Spirit residing within us, bearing that fruit, making us more like Jesus, convicting us of our own shortcomings, but encouraging us to come back to the throne for that lavish grace. And it's also a down payment, and we'll end with this. You see, at verse 14, it's a, the guarantee, a down payment of what? Greater things to come greater things to come, and he does it all, again, verse 14, for the praise of his glorious grace. God blesses us, God forgives us, and God makes us his own for his glory and grace. We have to end there. What ought to be our response to this? It ought to be humility, right? Because none of us deserve that. Gratitude, all, oh my gosh, humility and gratitude and all. If we could be a church, if we could be a community that was marked by humility and gratitude and all, 
how powerful a witness for Christ. Even crazy excitement, hyperventilation, yeah, even that. And one day we will experience that when we see completely what is ours that's coming. If people go nuts because they win a million dollars, what will it be like when we inherit eternity and a seat at the banquet table of God? And he says, you're mine. Let's pray. We have been blessed (laughs) beyond our imagining. Father, I think it's your mercy that you allow us to not even comprehend in its fullest to the degree we've been blessed because we would be non-functioning. But Lord, would you be so merciful to help us comprehend to the degree that it changes our lives. Father, that you have elected us and adopted us. You have redeemed us and sealed us. And you've done it all (laughs) to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, I pray that this week, each of us would have a conversation between Ephesians 1 and our life and let that conversation shape the contours and directions of the choices we make and the ways we live. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.